Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Now, when you think about it, the number of places both familiar and new in space and time that we encounter every single day is unfathomable. It's no wonder we can get lost from time to time. But how is it that we don't get lost more often? More to the point, how do we navigate at all? Christopher Kemp is a molecular biologist specialising in neurodegenerative diseases at Michigan State, but he's also the author of a new book, Dark and Magical Places, The Neuroscience of How We Navigate. He joins us now. You're welcome to the programme, Christopher. Why dark and magical? That's an unusual thing to stick in a, in a book about navigation, I, I would have thought. Well, that's um, a good question. I mean, it's it's basically... You you may be a good navigator. Uh, I get a sense that maybe you are, if that's not how you view most places. But you know what um, what really drove me toward this subject is that I am a terrible terrible navigator. I mean, I I, I struggle on a daily basis, and it's something that my uh, my wife, by contrast, is an absolutely excellent navigator. It's um, she she does these feats of navigation that seem supernatural to me, and and um, It'll be a source of real frustration for her as I drive straight past our house instead of driving into the into the driveway. And so, you know, there are lots of people like me, and and it took me into my forties to sort of uh, gain the the wisdom and perspective to understand that that we're out there, and not everybody sees the world in the same way as I do. So, to me, uh, any city or or any place really is a is a dark and magical place full of mystery and incredibly confusing at all times. Um, I, I hope my wife won't mind me saying she is better in so many ways at so many things than me. But it, when it comes to navigation, it, we're the reverse of you. I think Star <laughs> is is absolutely incredibly bad at um, at navigating her way out of a paper bag. Uh, but she, as I say, she's better at most things than me. Uh, uh, so can you take us through a bit of the because different types of the brain, different parts of the brain that are responsible for different parts of navigation, because navigation isn't exactly, it's not one thing, is it? It's sort of a collection of things to, to get from A to B, because you need to know where you are and so on, where you're going and how to get there. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it's actually one of the most complex things that we ask our brains to do on a daily basis. And it's, really? yeah, oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, when you think of just even taking a simple journey from the kitchen to the bathroom, it's so many different things. I mean, you, you're employing your your prefrontal cortex that is your sort of executive functioning and your decision-making. Um, you're using all of your visual centers to understand where you are and where you're currently oriented in space. I mean, it wouldn't be any good if you were in the kitchen to try and walk through the wall to get to the bathroom. So you have to have a really good sense of where you are and how you're oriented and then you have to have a good understanding of your target destination and where that is in relation to where you currently are. And then you have to do all this really intricate spatial updating as you take the journey from one place to another. And so it's it's incredibly complex. And it's one of those kind of um, tasks that employs numerous different brain regions and, and different neurons to do something that we considered to be um, fairly straightforward, largely automated. A lot of it is subliminal. You know, I mean, it's, um, there, are, there are brain regions that um, subliminally help us to understand and to plan a route through a, through a room, for instance. I mean, um, there's a reason we don't try to leave a room through a painting or clamber into a fridge. And that's because <laughs> our 
you know, way below the level of thought. Our brain is doing this really um, intricate processing of, of scenes and environments to help us do this stuff well. Um, when we talked about navigation last time on the program, I was really fascinated by these things called place cells. Can you remind the listener what, what a place cell is and, and what its role is in navigation? Yeah, absolutely. I, I share your fascination. And when I first um, learned about them, I think that's what really made me think that there was enough for a book here. To, you know, it's basically... Place cells are neurons that are almost exclusively in the hippocampus, which is a really sort of tiny, diminutive part of the brain, deep in the center of the brain, that is involved uh, primarily in learning and memory. But what these cells do is they fire in a very organized way to tell you where you are. And the way they do it, if you think... Um, of like an alphabet, you know, we, we have an alphabet of 26 letters and we can use that in multiple different ways to spell out thousands and thousands of words. Place cells, there's, you know, several hundred thousand of them, but for any specific place, around 10,000 of them will fire together and they'll do it in a way that means that that ensemble, that subpopulation of place cells that fires together is unique for any particular location. So, if I'm standing at the at the sink in my kitchen, 10,000 unique place cells will fire to tell me that that's where I am. And then if I go, you know, if I walk to my back door, then a, a completely different subpopulation of place cells will fire to tell me that I'm in this new location. Oh, I, th- I thought um, it was an individual cell for an in- individual place. And I, I thought that, that wouldn't make any sense. But um, it, it's actually, you have a number of, of these cells and, and depending on where you are, a combination of those will fire. Yeah, I mean, that's where their sort of informative processing power comes from. You're not wrong in that they they were discovered in that way in that scientists were kind of listening into the activity of individual neurons with recording electrodes back in the early 70s. And they discovered that um, if you listen to the, to the neurons of a rat as it sort of explores uh, a little enclosure then you might be listening into a cell that only fires in this one particular corner. And every time the rat goes to that corner of the enclosure, this place cell fires to say, you know, you're in the northwest corner of, of, of the box. And then any time it moves elsewhere, that cell goes completely quiet. But the way that they actually have that, that ability to sort of encode spatial information for the entire universe is they do it with these ensembles of cells firing together in this really unique way. So, so that you would have, for example, a, a combination of those, let's say it's a, you know, like a license plate, you know, TD5X9, that would be, you know, your, your front door and XP135 could be um, a beach in Ibiza that you visited 25 years ago. W- would those place cells stay there and fire again in the same way if you return back to that beach in Ibiza? Well, I mean, this is, you're asking questions that the, that the scientists are asking now, and it does seem some, some very recent data that came out shows that there is some drift over time, and, and these ensembles do sort of change. But, you know, it's a really complicated question to ask, because the only way that you could really understand that is if you somehow found a way to, to record the activity of all the place cells in the hippocampus at the same time, to try to determine how their activity changes over time. And that's yeah. something that is just absolutely impossible. And 
you know, to, to neuroscientists who are doing this work, I, I don't see how it will ever be possible to, to listen to the activity of all neurons at once. But, um, but these are, you know, really interesting questions that are at the leading edge of this field. How do we store those memories? I know this is only a small part of navigation, but how do we store those memories of where we've been? Um, you know, if I go to a new place, uh, say a shopping center um, that's just opened up, how is that stored? Is that stored in the hippocampus? And and if so, do over time do do you do you need more play cells, or will will the set amount that you have will that do? Because I heard something about taxi drivers having bigger um, sections of the brain to do with navigation. Is that true? That is true. That's totally true. Yeah, that research is absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people probably have heard that taxi drivers, London cab drivers, have to sort of study um, something called the knowledge for, for up to four years where they gradually build up their, sort of accumulate this spatial knowledge of the entire city and all of its 25,000 uh, roadways and they have to without GPS and without devices they have to be able to um, to, to plot out the the best and most efficient route anywhere and um, you know uh, neuroscientists have shown that that part of the brain that's involved in that the posterior hippocampus actually gets larger in the same way as you might think of a bodybuilder's biceps getting larger as they lift weights every day and um you know that one of the most interesting parts of that to me is that uh, the the brain is flexible, but it always comes at a cost. And so, even though the posterior hippocampus, which is involved in in this spatial memory, is getting larger, that means that the anterior hippocampus gets smaller. So there's always going to be a cost. And so, um, is is by any chance that part of the brain responsible for knowing when to be quiet? <laughs> <laughs> is that is that the cost that taxi drivers um, in in London pays? Like not knowing actually, this is not a good time. I do not want to chat right now. That's a great theory. We could work, <laughs> uh, we could work with something like that. Right. So um uh, so we we know about play cells and and that, that certain combination fire for different parts. What other parts of our brain are involved in navigation? Well, so there's other there's other firstly there's other specialized cells that also are doing really uh, really specialized tasks like head direction cells that fire um, almost in the same way as uh, they're, they're kind of an internal compass. So you've got um, this population of cells and only a certain subpopulation of them will fire when your head is pointing in a particular direction. So okay, well, 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 when you say a direction, do you mean a direction relevant to where you are or re relevant to magnetic north? Well, I mean... But relevant to north. I mean, they don't know north, but if I look out the window, there's going to be a subpopulation of cells that always fire in that direction. They're doing it today. And if I come back to this window a year from now, that same population of cells are just, are just finely attuned to that particular head direction. But if I stand on the spot where I am now and turn in a complete circle, then at some point, every single one of my head direction cells will have fired with one revolution. Um, but but the ones that are firing as I look at the window now will only fire as I look at the window. It's like... So, so, um, so in other words, different parts of your brain, you could look at the window side on and you could look at the window face on and different cells would fire. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what, and what about if, if you were doing, if you were looking, if your head was faced forward, but in virtual reality, you were looking left? I am not sure about that, to tell you the truth. I don't know. I love it when I ask a question. Where yeah, me too. I mean, that's science, right? I, I love it too. I'm a scientist. And so the, the don't know parts are the best parts. But, um, but then there's also a, a type of cell called the grid cell, which fires in a very organized way that sort of lays an, an imaginary grid over the, over the surface of your environment. And when you think about it, these, these cells together, cells that tell you where you are, cells that tell you where you're pointing, and cells that give you some kind of metric idea of distance relative to other objects in the environment are all things that are really important to building an internal map, an internal representation of, um, of space. And so they are what help us build our, our cognitive map. How do grid cells work? What's their function? So they fire in a, in a very organized way that kind of um, lays a, a grid out on just an imaginary grid on the environment that you're, that you're part of. Um, How do we know that? They can, again, the same way. I mean, most of this work, it has to be said, is done on rats. Yeah. Done on rats. But any opportunity that scientists have to, um, to try to see if these cells are in humans too um, seems to bear out the, the, the evidence that we have them as well. And so okay. if you listen to these, to these cells if you listen into their activity and, and watch them fire their nerve impulses, you can see that, um, that they'll fire in this very organized way. If you walk across a room, they'll fire in a regular pattern to make this grid. Um, yeah. It's really fascinating stuff. And the, the researchers who discovered the grid cell actually won the Nobel Prize for it. Um, it was really an wow. astonishing discovery. Finally, I wanted to ask you about place blindness. Mm. What is that and, and how does it happen? Well, um, I like to think of it in much the same way as face blindness. A lot of people are very familiar with this idea that there are there are some people around um, and it's it's a sizable portion of, uh, of us, you know, maybe one or two percent of us just cannot recognize people. We're, we're terrible at it. And place blindness is very similar. It's... Um, uh, a researcher called Giuseppe Iaria has been studying it for 10 or 15 years now, and he finds a similar proportion of people, 1% to 2% of the population, just really struggles to a point with navigation that, it, that it's almost disabling. I mean, they don't seem to build this, this cognitive map, this internal representation of, of the world that, that many people do. I and so what does that look like then? They, they, they could walk into a, a supermarket or Ikea, for example, and they wouldn't be able to find the exit having been through it a couple of times? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it seems like there's a, there's a varying kind of degree. Some people, um, some people have it and have found tricks and strategies to, to exist and, and not struggle too badly. Some people have it and they get lost in their own homes. They can't find the bathroom in their own house. They, wow. um, they, you know, they, it, it impacts every part of their lives. When you think about how you would get to work or, you know, if you, if you regularly took a bus to work, like I do, how you would know when to get off the bus to, to, when you're, when you're at work, you know, you'd have to build all these strategies and say, when I see that, 
that square and that particular sharp, that's when I have to get off the bus. It, yeah, it's, it's very impactful. They don't seem to build cognitive maps. When you put them in an fMRI scanner and look at the activity of different brain regions and ask them to sort of navigate a virtual environment, those brain regions that light up in a normal person do not light up in those people. They're not building their, their map. Uh, well, in the book, um, Christopher uh, explains how navigation works in the brain. Um, he talks about how Neanderthals navigated um, and uh, talks about super navigators. It's a really interesting book that sort of marries these kind of interesting stories and anecdotes with neuroscience. The book is called Dark and Magical Places, the Neuroscience of How We Navigate. Christopher Kemp, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on, Jonathan. I appreciate it. 